Romans chapter 8, this glorious, triumphant chapter. We read that in connection with our study. We began in our confession called the Canons of Dort, or the Standards of Dort, composed at the Synod of Dort in 1618-1619 in the Netherlands over a dispute in Holland about the issue of election in the Bible. And we've begun looking at that. Noted last time that the beginning point is a recognition that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God would have been just to leave all people in their sin and misery and to judge them for that. But God, now we see this morning, has chosen to save some, and that is the wonder of his sovereign grace. Romans chapter 8, I'd like to read the whole chapter here. Romans 8 at verse 1, God's holy word. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh shut their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. But we were saved in this hope, 
But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Turn from the scripture reading to take out that small forms and prayers book in front of you and to turn to our to one of our confessions, the Canons of Dort, and that's page 260 in the Forms and Prayers book, page 260. And we want to read articles 6 and 7 this morning on page 260. We had seen that though all men deserve death, God sent forward, or he manifested his love in sending his son to die for sinners, and then God sent forward the preaching of the gospel. And then we saw in Article 4 that there's a twofold response to the gospel. Some believe it and some don't. And now the question, how come some believe? Article 6. The fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and that others do not stems from his eternal decision. For all his works are known to God from eternity. In accordance with this decision, he graciously softens the heart, however hard, of his chosen ones and inclines them to believe. But by his just judgment, he leaves in their wickedness and hardness of heart those who have not been chosen. And in this especially is disclosed to us his act, unfathomable, 
and as merciful as it is just, of distinguishing between people equally lost. This is the well-known decision of election and reprobation revealed in God's word. This decision, the wicked, impure, and unstable, distort to their own ruin, but it provides holy and godly souls with comfort beyond words. And then Article 7, election or choosing is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation." And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his Son, to glorify them. God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. As Scripture says in Ephesians 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him with love. He predestined us, whom he adopted as his children through Jesus Christ, in himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace by which he freely made us pleasing to himself and his beloved. And elsewhere, Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's ask God for his help. O gracious God, we bow before these profound and mysterious truths. We acknowledge, O Lord, the limitations of our minds and the limitations of your revelation. That you have told us what is good for us to know. And we pray that we might accept your word, we might understand so far as you've revealed, we might humble ourselves beneath your word, that we might find our comfort and praise to you. Father, help these truths to be handled in a way appropriate, and we pray you'll give us the hearts, Lord, to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people of God, one of the favorite verses in the Bible of Christians is Romans 8, 28. I remember sometime, I think, in high school, coming to recognize or discover that verse and counting it among my favorites, and then shortly thereafter realizing that it wasn't unique to me in any way. It belongs to most all Christians, right? A favorite verse, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's a glorious comfort to know that things work together, not because this is just the kind of universe we live in, that things always shake out, that you don't have to worry and you can be happy because things always end up being good in the end. 
It's actually precisely not the kind of universe we live in. According to Romans chapter 8, we live in a place of groanings, of pain, of sorrow, of misery, of death. But the comfort of Romans 8.28 is that though we live in a broken world due to our sin, we have a Father in heaven who has his hands upon our lives, upon every hair on our head, upon every trial he brings us, and he so rules these things and overrules them that he works in a way to bring us the greatest good. And so there's nothing that escapes the attention of our Father, nothing that's out of his grasp, but all things are being worked together by good for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Rightly, it's a favorite verse of the Christian. But you know that while many people find comfort in Romans 8.28, fewer people know of the foundation beneath Romans 8.28. And I certainly would have counted myself or count now myself looking back in that category to have memorized Romans 8.28 but to know nothing really of the context. To, to quote Romans 8.28 but not even to realize there's a Romans 8.29 which begins with the word because. For. And what follows there, well it's just a little bit like the the storyline that you've bumped into in reading a novel or watching a movie where, where a young adult in a destitute situation finds some older adult beginning to help them. Maybe they have bills they can't pay or, or they need advice and counsel or, or they don't have a place to live or, or they can't get into a school and the person helps them go to that school. And, and so this benefactor begins to apply these helpful mercies to the person's life and as the story develops then finally at some point at some climactic moment it's revealed that this benefactor is actually a long lost relative it's an uncle it's a grandfather it's actually your father for some reason was out of your life but has come back into your life unbeknownst to this young person and that's really you see the way it is with with the believer Because in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we discover? But that we've been loved not just now when we first came to Christ. God has now begun to love me. But in coming to Christ, we realize that he's always loved me. And this one who is doing me good is the one who loved me before the creation of the world. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I who found, O Savior, true, but was found, was found of thee. And so that becomes the realization, the increasing realization of the Christian, that God did not start loving us at some moment in time or even at the moment we believed on him, but that he has loved us in Christ from before time. And this, we confess in the canons of Dort, this doctrine of election is is a comfort, a comfort beyond words for the believer. It's not revealed to us as a controversy. It actually sometimes has to be a controversy, first of all, doesn't it? Until our hearts yield to God. Until we bow before the sovereignty of God. But it's revealed to be a comfort. A comfort beyond words. Not to be a doctrine we're embarrassed of, but a doctrine that solicits our deepest praise. God be praised. He's done it all. He's loved us from before the creation of the world. I'd like to look at this doctrine of election this morning from our confession in light of Romans 8. Under three headings. First of all, that we've been loved from eternity. Second, that we are being loved overwhelmingly. And third, that we will be loved 
everlastingly. Well, first of all, we're loved from eternity. When, when the Apostle Paul says all things work together for good for those who love God are called according to his purpose, then he says, because whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In Romans 8, 29, there's two words that point us back before we came into existence, actually before time. The word foreknew and the word predestined. What does it mean that God foreknew? Well, it means obviously to know beforehand. To foreknow is to know before. But what did God know before? Did he know some body of information? Well, yeah, we know God knows everything, right? He knows a lot of information. He knows all things. The word foreknow is actually occasions a great deal of debate. Some suggest that what God foreknew was who would believe on him. And God, foreknowing who would believe on him, who would choose him, God, on that basis, therefore, chose them. But that's to insert something in a text that's not there at all. And in fact, that's to insert something in the text that goes against what the text is saying. Because the text isn't saying that God foreknew something, but that God foreknew someone. You see that? Whom God foreknew. It's not what God foreknew, but it's who God foreknew. God foreknew a people. And what does that mean? Well, the word know in the Bible often means a lot more than a cognitive knowledge of a body of information. But to know in the Bible is often pregnant with the meaning of knowing intimately or knowing in fellowship and communion. Knowing in such a way that that you set delight and affection upon another. To foreknow is essentially to forelove. God foreloved. Jesus, remember, offered that sobering warning that on the last day there would be those who would, these people who had done all kinds of acts, they thought they'd done them in Jesus' name, and Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. He's surely not saying that he didn't know any information about them. He's condemning them precisely because of what he does know about them. But when he says, I never knew you, he's saying, I had no relationship with you. When the Apostle Paul says that all things are being worked together in your life for good, he says it's because God foreknew you. He foreloved you. What a wonder this is. That God, from eternity set his distinguishing affection and delight upon our lives. What a wonder this is, that before we were born, the words of Ephesians chapter 1, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You know, this this for the believer ought to be a, a steadying doctrine that gives great comfort to your life, that God loved me from eternity. I was thinking this week that it's quite a marvel how God has made us and made the home and made our development. I mean, this, this thing of being born into the world as a helpless infant, not even aware of what's going on, and then you grow up, and as you grow up, you become aware of who you are and who your parents are and all these things. But isn't it an amazing thing that God has so designed the home and the family and, and our development as humans that we are embraced by the love of our parents before we are even conscious of our existence. 
And isn't that a steadying thing in a, in a good home when, when parents, as the children grow up, are able to tell them stories about the day of their birth, maybe, if you have a good enough memory, which I don't, or about, about how things went as they were a toddler and started learning to walk, or, or for those of us with shorter memories, you can get out the photo album, and, and the kids are seeing now pictures of their parents holding them as an infant, or playing with them as a toddler, and, and they have no memory, no recollection of those days. Later on, they'll think they do, because they've seen the pictures, and they'll pretend like they knew that, but, but they don't. And yet, what a comfort to their lives that they can realize that my parents were there for me and they were caring for my helpless life when I didn't even know who I was or who they were. In other words, the love of my parents preceded my conscious existence. And so now, as as children have their trials and troubles and as teenagers go through all these changes of bodies and hormones and thinking and so forth, there's this, this comforting foundation that my parents were there before it all began, all my struggles. And it's actually that foundation of the parents' love that becomes the foundation upon which now a young person is able to wrestle with all the issues of life. Because this part is solid. I know this won't change. My parents love me. But isn't that just a very tiny way in which God reminds us, a bit analogous to, to what God is telling us this morning, that the steady foundation of our lives upon which we're able to endure the trials of this life is to know that before I knew who God was, he loved me. Before I was created, God loved me. God has been there. Even before he called this earth into existence, he knew my name, he had written my days in his book. This is a a wonder that's beyond our comprehension. We can ponder it all the days of our life and not fully grasp it. It's no wonder that that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians has to to pray that, that God would grant the grace and strength to grasp how wide and high and deep is the love of God in Christ for us. And really, it's only, it's only when we see it's a love in Christ that we even begin to grasp what this means. Sometimes we get all hung up on our election, but you know, beneath our election is Christ's election. God has chosen us in Christ, the Bible says. We're never to conceive of our election or God choosing us apart from Christ Jesus. Never. In the confession we read, in Article 7, it says at the end of that first paragraph, or second paragraph, that he did this. He chose us. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. God did this election by choosing Christ. He chose Christ to be our mediator, to be the head of this new human race, and in choosing Christ, he chose us in Christ. Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13 says. Or Peter says he's foreordained before. So God foreknew us. He foreloved us, and he foreloved us in the Son that he loved and chose to be the mediator. But the other word, I mentioned there are two words that take us back before time. The one is that foreknowing, but the other word is the predestining. Predestining. If you solve a puzzle on the wheel of fortune and it's 
a prize puzzle, you might hear now announced that you've won a trip. And it's been pre-selected. They're not asking you where you want to go. It's declared to you you're going to the Caribbean. You've, you've won. This is your destiny. It's already chosen for you. And not, not by the gods in heaven, but by the staff and the producer of the show. But you see, there's something far greater here when Paul, the apostle, says that we are not only foreknown, but those whom God foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Something far greater than fortune. Something far greater than the God of fortune and the will of fortune, as they used to believe in, has determined our final destiny. The God who foreloved us has predestined us. And what has he predestinated us for? Well, the apostle says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the other reason why cutting Romans 8.28 off from Romans 8.29 blows the whole thing. Because then you start quoting Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. And you say, God, this isn't good. Your word's not true. This doesn't feel right. I don't like it. It's painful. It's not good. But when you read Romans 8.29, you learn what good is. Good is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Good is to be shaped after the pattern of God in his beloved, the Lord Jesus. Your greatest good is to be made like Christ, to dwell with God forever. And then suddenly it becomes clear that, that all the trials and the sorrows of this life do not impede the good of God, but they're integral to the good that God's working in us. And so though the providence of God can be very confusing... And to our hearts can weigh very heavy, and God doesn't deny that anywhere in his word. That's why he gave us the Psalms of Lament. But by faith, we have to know that in all these things, God is working for our ultimate good to make us after the pattern of Jesus Christ so that we can live with our God forever and glorify him. Some parents have high goals and aspirations for their children, and those children seeing photos of their parents holding them when they were but infants might wonder, what were my mom and dad thinking? What did they think I would grow up to be? What was in their mind? But far greater than, than the thoughts of our parents is the, the mind of our Father in heaven, who before he even called forth the light in this universe had predestined us to be shaped after his own beloved, and to inherit with him. God has loved us everlastingly. But secondly, this morning, consider the fact that God loves us overwhelmingly. That's our second point. God loves us overwhelmingly. These points get shorter, so hang in there. What I have, what I have in mind here with God loving us overwhelmingly is two things that he based, excuse me, that he loved us, number one, based on nothing good in us, and number two, that he loved us in such a way as to give us everything good. Or to say it differently, God loved us overwhelmingly and that he loved us based upon no conditions that we met. But number two, he loved us overwhelmingly in such a way as to meet all the conditions necessary for us to arrive in glory. First of all, he loved us based on no conditions that we have met or will meet. 
we use the language of unconditional election to summarize that reality that God foreloved us and God predestined us for glory based upon nothing good in us. Now, for those who cannot accept that God distinguishes in his grace and mercy between those equally lost, choosing to save some and not choosing to save others, then the escape route, as I mentioned earlier, is often to redefine foreknowledge as God foreknowing or foreseeing who would believe on him. He foresaw that someone would believe on him, someone would choose God, and on that basis, God chooses them. And in that sense, election is completely conditional. It's conditioned on man's response. But you see, if you embrace that teaching, which is not what the Bible teaches, then you'd have to lay your head down on your pillow tonight in great fear. Because if God's foreloving of me is based on my loving him, what if tomorrow morning I wake up and I don't love God? If God's choosing of me is based on my choice of him, what if tomorrow morning in all my fickleness and sinfulness I choose not God? See, that's a salvation that depends entirely on man. In Article 9, which we did not read this morning, it says, election not based on foreseen faith. Article 9, the, this same election took place not on the basis of foreseen faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, or any other good quality and disposition, as though it were based on a prerequisite cause or condition in the person to be chosen, but rather for the purpose of faith, of the obedience of faith, holiness, and so forth. Accordingly, election is the source of each of the benefits of salvation. You see, it's echoing Ephesians chapter 1 that says we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. We were not chosen because God saw that we would be holy and blameless. We were chosen to be made holy and blameless. And so we begin to see in the Bible that, that all the benefits of salvation are not the cause of election. Our faith and our holiness is not the cause of election, but it's the consequence of election. It's this great foreloving of God from which flows all these mercies, faith and holiness and perseverance. But if God didn't choose us based on ourselves, if all people are equally lost, all equally fit for destruction, all equally children of wrath, and not a one of them distinguish themselves by saying, look, at I'm, I'm more ready to be a Christian than he is. If we all equally were dead in sin and misery, then why did God choose some and not others? Well, the answer is not found in us, but the answer is found only in God that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 says, Having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's the answer the Bible gives. Why did God choose this one and not that one? According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted, in his beloved. 
Deuteronomy, God tells Israel that he loved them because he loved them. In Ephesians 1, God tells us that he chose us because it was his pleasure to choose us. We can't go beyond that. We can't know the mind of God as God knows the mind of God. We must say that God's choice of some to save was not because some deserved it in any way. We must also say that God's choice to save some was not random, that he drew names out of a hat. We must also say it was not a choice of of a naked or arbitrary will. No, God's choice was a choice of love. He foreloved us. God's choice was a choice of sovereignty. That he chose some for his own reason, in his own way. He chose according to his own good pleasure. Article 10, the confession says, But the cause of this undeserved election is exclusively the good pleasure of God. This does not involve his choosing certain human qualities or actions from among all those possible as conditions of salvation, but rather involves his adopting certain particular persons from among the common mass of sinners as his own possession. The election is not that God chose faith as the condition by which you're saved, and so his election is the election of a condition, and whoever meets that condition then are the chosen of God. But election is that God chose people, particular persons, not for their worth or their personal distinction, but according to his love and his good pleasure. So God has loved us overwhelmingly by loving us unconditionally. But secondly, God has loved us overwhelmingly by meeting all the conditions it takes to bring us to glory. What a wondrous love this is. You know, when you see a mother's love, that, that her love is, is so deep and profound, but her love is also full of foresight. She's thinking about the future. Begins to amaze husbands as they see their wives. She's thinking about the next size of clothing and the next this and the next that. And, and then she goes to that and she prepares the way with such energy. And you think, what an overwhelming love. This child is in good hands. The Apostle Paul says, the Christian is in good hands. Because God has loved you overwhelmingly. Verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He didn't spare his own son. That's how great God's love is for his elect people. He gave his son for them. That language is interesting. He did not spare The late Westminster theologian John Murray writes, Parents spare their children when they do not inflict the full measure of chastisement due. Judges spare criminals when they do not pronounce a sentence commensurate with the crime committed. By way of contrast, that is not what God the Father did. He did not withhold or lighten one whit of the full toll of judgment executed upon his own well-beloved and only begotten Son. There was no alleviation of the stroke, for it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's what it means God did not spare his son. He did not in any way alleviate the weight of the punishment, the severity of the curse. He did not spare his son, but he laid it all upon him for our sakes. Christ the righteous one was made to be sin, made to be a curse. The Father delivered him up for us. What a a high cost. 
This is how we know that all things work together for our good. When we are tempted to doubt God's love or God's purpose, because we have this powerful argument that if God did not spare his son of the full severity of the curse on my sin, will he not also along with him freely give me all that I need? If God's given the greatest gift, his own beloved, to the greatest curse for my sake, then I need not doubt that even in this severe trial in which I feel like I'm not being spared, I actually am. I'm spared the whole of God's wrath. And I'm carried by the greatness of God's mercy. God has done everything necessary, required for securing our eternal well-being. He's working all things together for good. And we do not want to insult the love of God when he's already proven it and given his son. But this love of God in Christ, which he gave his son, is a very wise and energetic love. Notice in Romans 8.29, the apostle says not just that everything is being worked together for good because God foreknew us or foreloved us, and not just because he predestined us to be conformed to the image of a son, but he says, verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so, in this glorious, sovereign grace of God, God is working all things together for good. First of all, now, by calling us, by effectively, effectually bringing in us into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus. We who are dead in sin are made alive. We, we who are in our graves are called out like Lazarus and brought into the fellowship with Jesus. Paul said in Romans 8 earlier that those in the flesh cannot please God, that the sinful mind is hostile to God. It hates God. But by sovereign grace, we're called into fellowship with God. And then being called to Christ by faith, we're justified. Justification is the announcement that all your sins are forgiven. That you, by the judge, are declared righteous and accepted based on the fact that Christ took away your guilt and gave you his righteousness. Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The promise we have is not some new attorney who's telling us everything's going to go okay, don't worry about the court case. The word is the word of the judge. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. I, the judge, have declared it. Who shall bring a charge against you when I've announced it? That you're accepted by me. Called. Justified. And then in verse 30, the apostle writes the word glorified. And he writes it also in the past tense, which most commentators take as a past tense of certainty. So certain is it that he writes it as if it were accomplished already. But it's pointing to that glorious day still to come. When God, who foreloved us before the creation of the world, has at the return of Jesus raised us from the dead and raised us up in a glory of a perfected soul and body, fit for eternal fellowship with God. Lifted to the heights above, and we come to realize at that moment that all the groanings of our present life were not worthy to be compared to the glory that's been revealed in us. That at that moment, as we behold what God has made us accomplishing His work, this love that sought us before the creation of the world, 
that now transforms, standing in the very glory of the Lord Jesus. We see that as deep as the sorrows in the life were that we lived on earth, they were not worth comparing to what we have now in Jesus. We are loved overwhelmingly. But finally this morning, and briefly, we who are loved from eternity, we who are being loved overwhelmingly, will be loved everlastingly. Since God's love is not based on us, but is rooted in God himself, in Christ Jesus, it's a love that will never die, never change, never be rescinded, never be annulled. God's love of us in Christ is stronger than the strongest steel, more stable than a mountain, and more enduring than the most cherished, most cherished marriage bond. And the marriage bond is an amazing thing too, isn't it? I mentioned the family and the love of parents preceding the consciousness of children, but you know, another analogy God gives to us is that of marriage, right? When a choice made and proclaimed on a wedding day, is a choice that is maintained when a spouse has, has now returned to the state of infancy, perhaps has lost consciousness, is so forgetful now of the marriage vow they made and, and doesn't hardly know what it is to profess love and to keep love and all of that. But though that one suffers in that way mentally, that one is still loved by the one who promised to love that one. And so you see wondrous things sometimes in nursing homes and in homes where the one spouse, despite all the weaknesses now of, of their loved one, they still love that husband, they still love that wife. Which again is just a, paint re, a pale reflection of, of God's love for us. God has made a choice and God will stick with it. Article 11 of the Confession, election unchangeable. God, excuse me, just as God himself is most wise, unchangeable, all-knowing and almighty, so the election made by him can neither be suspended nor altered, revoked or annulled, neither can his chosen ones be cast off nor their number reduced. God chose particular persons to be saved before he created the world and it will never change. Never change. Isn't it wonderful that God's choice was not based on us? Or we might fear it would change. Those who are married for their money better keep bringing home the money. And those who are married for their good looks may feel they need to keep themselves up. But those who are loved, not for what they are, but for who God is. And since God is unchanging in all of his glory and holiness and righteousness and love, his love for us cannot change. He loved me before I committed all my sins. He loved me knowing I would commit all my sins. He loved me knowing all my weaknesses, warts and all. And he will love me everlastingly. That's what the Christian knows. And so the Apostle Paul can go on to sing in Romans 8 that nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Father, the Creator, has loved us. Nothing is greater than his love. Nothing will break the bond.
So what is the implication of all of this? Three things. Number one, number one, deep humility. If this morning you came here saying, I already know about election. I already know election. I already mastered that doctrine. Well, you can know you haven't mastered it when you leave here. And you say something haughty to your brother or sister. Or speak in a way rudely to your husband or wife. Or shake your head at a homeless person thinking that you would never do that to yourself. If election is that God looking at a world equally lost for his own reason chose to save some, then of all things, election should bring us to deep and profound humility. That God hasn't left me with what I deserve. But the whole joy of my existence is that he sought me, he chose me, he drew me to himself, he forgave me, and he's bringing me to glory. It's all of him. Secondly, it should produce profound confidence. God is working all things together for the greatest good. A good he did not recently invent, a plan for my life that he didn't come up with yesterday, but a good that he determined before he made the world, the great good of being with him, conformed to the image of Jesus and glory forever. My life is built on the foundation of God's love. I don't need to dress like an orphan or act like one. This is my father's world. I'm his child. His love is not based on me, what I've done or what I will do. His love is entirely secure. And so I can live my life humbly as a child of the great king. Thirdly, this must produce in us unending praise. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, why did God do all this? To the praise of his glorious grace. And then to the praise of his glory. And then again to the praise of his glory. And if you read Ephesians 1 and you haven't yet caught it, then you need to read it again. The Lord is shouting, what's the ultimate reason that I've foreloved, that I've chosen, that I've predestined, that I've called, that I've justified, that I've glorified these sinners? It's that my name might be great. And the very character of my love might be manifest. And all the world might know I'm a God to be worshipped. Our hearts are to sing to God, to sing about God, and to rejoice in him. May God enlarge our hearts in knowing his love and enlarge our mouths to praise his name. Amen. Oh God in heaven, we bow before you with humility, but not with the humility that your truth deserves. With love for you, but not with the love that your love is worthy of. With a choice for you, but not with a choice that is equal to your choice of us. Oh God, we praise you. What a great and a glorious God you are. We pray that you'd grasp us the strength to understand something of the wonder, the depth and height of the love of God for us in Christ. And in knowing it, may we rejoice with assurance, may we be humbled to our knees, and may we rise to praise you. Oh God, we ask this, and we give you our thanks and our love. In Jesus' name, amen.